We come to Psalm 132, and you notice here that this psalm is divided into two parts. And I want us to read the psalm through together, and I think you'll see the the themes uh, come to light here. Lord, remember David and all of his afflictions, how he sware unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob. Surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed. I will not give sleep to mine eyes or slumber to mine eyelids. That shows David's great desire to do what he wanted to do for the Lord until I find out a place for the Lord and habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Lo, we heard of it in Ephrata. We found it in the fields of the wood. We will go into his tabernacles. We will worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, thou in the ark of thy strength. Let thy priest be clothed with righteousness. And let thy saints shout for joy. For thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon thy throne forevermore. For the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation. And her saints will shout aloud for joy. There will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. We see the psalm divided into two parts. The first 11 verses are address David's desire, his goal, to build the Lord a house in Jerusalem, a temple, a house for Jehovah. The second part, beginning in verse 12, verse 11, begins with, deals with God's promise to David to build more than just a physical house, but a dynasty, a line, a family line that would a lineage of dynasty through David. And so we see David's desire and God's desire. David's desire to build a physical house, our Lord's desire to build a dynasty that would lead into the coming of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to rule and reign forever and ever. We see here, of course, David's deep desire and his sincerity His godly desires are, though, we must note, are often beset with affliction. I think sometimes people will say in the midst of trying to serve the Lord, whether it be rearing children or doing the gospel ministry or whatever it is, and then affliction comes, here I am trying to serve the Lord, or I have these desires that I'm thwarted from doing them. And so I would recommend and encourage all of us that though we have godly desires and it seems we're thwarted in them that there are pitfalls and problems remember that paul told the corinthians that there's a great door and effectual opening to me but there are many adversaries so the world and the flesh and the devil don't take a holiday because we desire to do a project for the lord or to live right or to follow his precepts in fact The closer we get to that, the more the host of hell will come out and the more our flesh will oppose us. You just decide I'm going to read through the scriptures or whatever some godly project you you, you decide to do. Your flesh, your own flesh will fight you at every turn. And of course, Satan and the the, the, uh, lures of the world. And so 
David has this godly, consuming desire to build a temple, but there are afflictions. There are problems on every side. And I want you to know that, that afflictions will come. Verse 1 tells us, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions. All manners of trials come out against David in this, his attempt to keep him from becoming king even, let alone build a house for the Lord. David, as a young boy, is told he will be king. But it seems like it'll never come to pass. Oh, he's brought for the, to the court for a little while. But the paranoia, the sinfulness, the fear of, of King Saul drives David away. He runs for his life for years and years. He's in exile. The farthest thing from a king living in a cave. What a pretty sight you are, David. That's the farthest thing from a king. And even after he becomes king, there are enemies that come. There are trials. There are temptations to drive him away from the throne, even in his own household. But even more, we, the word here for afflictions really is anxious care. And this sin is condemned in the scriptures. Be careful for nothing but in prayer, by prayer and everything, uh, in supplication, make your requests, everything, all those requests but known to the Lord. That anxious care. We should not fret. We should not worry. Take no thought, as we've studied in Matthew chapter 6. Above all his problems and cares, the ones that were overwhelming and the, the most pressing thing upon his heart and mind was his deep desire to build a temple for Jehovah. All of his wars, all of his work, and all of his money that he amassed were for this one priority. In fact, it bothered David that as a king he had a glorious palace, a house for himself, and yet God did not have a house. In fact... When David was amassing the, the material, the, the Ark of the Covenant was lost, so to speak. We, we wonder, how could such a thing happen? How could the most important symbol of Israel's communion with the Lord be not known where its whereabouts are? In verses 2 through 6, the psalmist restates and immortalizes David's pledge to build a house for the Lord. The promise is stated in three ways. In verse 2, how he swore unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob. So we notice his truthfulness in the matter. He swore unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob. In other words, David promised himself over to the God of Jacob. Now, that's an interesting phrase. We see throughout the scriptures, not just here in Psalm 132, but in other places, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is a reminding uh, title, one of the titles of God, to remember who God was to Abraham, the promises he made to Abraham, how he dealt with Isaac, the child of promise, and what Isaac represented, and how he dealt with Jacob, the founder, if you will, the literal founder of the 12 tribes. His 12 sons will become the 12 tribes of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have often referred to that in my preaching. And one day a man came up to me and said, why do you always refer to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And he was very upset about it. And I said, well, because that's a title that the Bible reminds us of God in this way. And however the scriptures remind us, he, he thought it was just describing the God of the Jews or an Old Testament title. But no, this, that title reminds us of the beginning of the promise of the only begotten son, the promised miraculous son to Abraham that would ultimately be our savior. And so when we think of Abraham, we think of, oh, we've been studying his life, haven't we? And all the, the wonderful things that God did through him. And then Isaac, 
and, and of course, of Jacob, and we'll study those in detail as well. So his truthfulness, he swore to the Lord. In other words, he promised himself over to the God of Jacob. And we remember Jacob probably most uh, prominently as he wrestled with the Lord at Bethel when he had been on the run from the Lord. Jacob had come to a crisis point in his life. God is so faithful, he will not leave us over to ourselves. He will bring us to these places where we can go no farther. And so God brought Jacob to that place where it was just he and Jacob wrestling all night in prayer. There he promised the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob a promise. In, In Genesis 28, verse 20, And Jacob vowed a vow. This reminds us of Jacob's vow, saying, If God will be with me, I will keep me in the way that I go. I will give me bread and will give me bread. If God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on. And he goes on in in Genesis 28, verse 22. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. Of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth to thee. Here we see the second mention of a tithe long before the law is ever given. Where did Jacob get that amount? Where did Abraham get that amount when he tithed to Melchizedek? I'll give a tenth of all that comes my way to the Lord. What a vow that is to make. And so, no doubt, part of David's vow here was not just praying, oh, I wish I could build a temple one day. In fact, we know that David was never able to do that, was he? But what was he able to do? He bought all the materials. He amassed the amazing resources that it took to build the the temple. Of all of David's wars, of all of his accumulation of wealth, he gave the Lord the first fruits of everything. And, And even more than that, when we read about the great amounts, and he encouraged other people to give, other kings, join in our building program, send us wood and cedar, send us choice materials so that we may build a house unto God. Shouldn't we use our influence for the cause of Christ and the things of God? We might not have everything, but we know someone else who might can, and they can join in. And David used, he was so sincere in this vow. He just didn't sit in a rocking chair and say, oh, I wish we could build a temple one of these days. That sure would be a, a good thing to do. No. As he prayed, he used all the means available to him, starting in his own pocketbook. And David had everything ready for Solomon when it came time for the Lord to allow the temple to be built. David praised this vow of Jacob to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when Jacob was about to be the founder of the Hebrew nation. His 12 sons will become the 12 tribes of Israel in a similar way as as Jacob was the founder of the tribe, so David is the founder of the temple. Though he never laid a stone, he never had any part in the actual building of it, it could not have been built had David not amassed all the materials for it. Do you see that everyone has a part and that one's part is no less important than the other? We call it, we call it Solomon's temple, although the scripture never does. It is the temple of the Lord, isn't it? We refer to it as Solomon's temple and later Herod's temple because of the the personality behind it. But it's really the Lord's, isn't it? And David is the founder of the temple, if you will. He promises to be tireless in this effort. We see there in verse 3, Surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house. I will not come into my own house until or go to my own bed until I... I, I, I get this done. Now, this is a figure of speech, but it shows David's heart. I don't, I don't want to do anything else 
until I build the temple. Well, we know he had to do other things because he was never allowed to build the temple. But I know this, that those who do great things for the Lord, those who achieve great things for the kingdom of God, the cause of Christ, must have this kind of zeal. God doesn't bless laziness. And lethargy and apathy never did one thing. Oh, when we come to the house of the Lord, people, let's bring the best of our praise the best of what we have, not the leftovers. There are people who party all Saturday and Saturday night, and they come in dragging to the house of the Lord. He deserves the first fruits, the best. We ought to be have ready hearts and ready minds and ready to receive what he has for us and bringing our best to him. We must be single-minded. You remember that there's no room, as I've mentioned, for lethargy or apathy. Paul said, this one thing I do, I press toward the mark, the prize, forgetting those things which are behind. And uh, Jesus said of Mary to, to Martha, her sister, this one thing is needful. And she's chosen the good part. What was that that Mary chose that was the one thing about worshiping Jesus, taking the opportunity of the ordinances and the means of grace and being in the place of blessing. That was David's desire. We, I think of D.L. Moody, an evangelist of the late 1800s, who, who actually shook the European continent and America, American continent for the cause of Christ. And thousands and thousands were converted under D.L. Moody's ministry. But do you know where all that started? D.L. Moody, as a teenage boy hard-headed, rambunctious teenage boy in a Sunday school class. His Sunday school teacher became burdened about the boys in his class. He didn't see much fruit in their lives, and he doubted seriously whether any of them knew, truly knew the Lord savingly. And so this dear man took it upon himself to one at a time visit those boys and, and corner them, if you will, and present to them the claims of Christ and to urge them to believe on him. So when he came to D.L. Moody was working in a shoe shop, stocking shoes, and his Sunday school teacher found him and said, do you have a minute? I want to talk to you. And he just stood there and presented the claims of Christ, the gospel to D.L. Moody, and he immediately was converted. And it was just it was like a light bulb. He began tirelessly and spent the rest of his life uh, devoted to the things of Christ. Well, he wrote, The world has yet to see what God can do through a man wholly yielded to him. And then D.L. Moody wrote, By the grace of God, I'll be that man. Well, David had that same burning desire and that passion for the things of the Lord. And I want to ask myself this morning and you, am I that way? Do I have a burning zeal for the cause of Christ? and to, to make his ways known and to use whatever I have and the opportunities that come my way uh, to make Christ known and to, to show others whose side I'm on that I support the cause of Christ. And, and not just that, but literally giving ourselves over to prayer and the, the work of the Lord. He was tireless in this pursuit. We see there in verse 5, Until I find out a place for the Lord and habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Now, it would take years and years to find that place. Wars would be fought. There would be pestilence. There would be all manner of problems. But at last he found the place. And do you know what that place was? Mount Moriah. A place where years earlier, and we just happened to be studying that this morning in the morning worship time, the place where Abraham had been greatly tested by the Lord in the matter of offering 
the child of promise, the only son, Isaac, as a sacrifice. That place, and many believe was the exact place that David found to build the temple. We see there in verses 6 and 7, Lo, we heard of it in Ephrata, we found it in the fields of the wood. What? What did they find? We will go into his tabernacle, we will worship in his footstool. David's dream and his vow began to spread throughout the kingdom. Our king has a burning desire to build a house for the Lord. It became the talk of his soldiers. It became the talk from village to village. Everyone was talking about David's desire and his plans. No doubt they saw the shipments of supplies coming into the holy city to build a house for Jehovah. A search was made for the Ark of the Covenant throughout the kingdom, but for some reason it had been hidden away. Lo, we heard of it in Ephrata. Rumors circulated that the ark was somewhere in the land of Ephraim, uh, in a temporary shelter. It was viewed more as an object of dread and fear than as an object of delight. It is amazing that the most important symbol of the Jews, of Jehovah's relationship with them, was lingering in a state of forgotten neglect. Can you imagine that they even had to send, that would be like, uh, in our nation, and this is no comparison, but can you imagine if they said, well, we need, where's the Declaration of Independence? Where they, where have they put it? Where, where's the, con- the original copy of the Constitution? We've lost it somewhere. Far more important than that, the Ark of the Covenant that represented Jehovah's presence in the midst of his people. No wonder they had no direction. No wonder they were uh, backslidden and that things were the way they were. It was a symbol of the very presence of God. And we ask ourselves, how could this be? But I ask me, I ask you, how can this be? How can we get in that kind of, how can we forget the precious things of God? How can we forget our conversion? How can we forget that that secret place? David instituted an all-out search for it. At last they came to Kirjath-Jerim, the forest city, and they found it. And they exclaimed, we found it in the fields of the wood." 1 Chronicles 13, verse 5. There it was, neglected under a tent beneath some trees in a forest. Now, surely that's an inappropriate and an unlikely place for the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember that box overlaid in gold? Inside it were the tablets of stone, an example of the manna, Aaron's rod that budded. There on its lid... There were two angels with, facing one another with their wings overspread, covering their faces. And there on the top, there was the, where the blood was applied on the Day of Atonement that represented the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, taking away the sin of the world. No more important symbol ever to be given to God's people. But I ask ourselves this morning, and you know as well as I do, we would think that should have been the center of Israel's life. How could it be forgotten? How could it be laid aside? Where's your Bible? Where, why is it laid aside? Why has it got, got dust on it on the coffee table? Where is that secret place, that place of meeting with God in word and prayer? You see, that, that mercy seat, that picture is the place where you meet the Lord. Jesus said, that when you pray, pray in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret will reward thee openly. What an important thing it is to daily meet with the Lord. That meeting place, the mercy seat, the secret place. 
the place of meeting with God in his word and prayer, the place of worship. Some people have forgotten corporate worship. They've forgotten the, the ordinances and the, the means of grace that God has given to his people. And to neglect in any of these areas leaves a deficit in your spiritual heart, in your mind. We notice there in verse 8, Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, thou and the ark of thy strength. Notice what the psalmist brings before the Lord. Solomon used this same phrasing in his great prayer of dedication in Second Chronicles 6, verse 41. His glorious prayer of dedication, one of the most beautiful and the longest prayers in the Scripture. And I would encourage you to refer to it and read that, that prayer in First Chronicles chapter 6. Arise, O Lord, into thy resting place, thou in the ark of thy strength. When Hezekiah rededicates the temple, he might have used the same words, though in his day the Shekinah glory cloud of the Lord's presence had not yet departed from the temple. And that in itself is an amazing thing, that, it, he, that God still gave obvious sign of his presence in the temple. Think of the long silence of God, and that, that God endured through the years of Ahaz and all of his predecessors. They not only neglected the temple, they set up altars to heathen gods and pagan gods. They filled the rooms with debris and stacked it up like a warehouse with all kinds of things. All this defies our imagination, but how and why the Lord endured this treatment for so long until we look in our own hearts and see rubbish piled up and the holy things forgotten. And those experiences and times of the Lord, long distance, and we're just a shell of what we should be. As you see, it's not hard to realize. We say, well, how could the temple have been gotten in such a condition in Hezekiah's day? Why would they have to clear out things? Well, don't we have to have a clearing out? Don't we have to have a coming before the Lord and search our hearts and try us, O oh Lord, and show us these things and repent of sin and, and, and renew our love and devotion? And as we speak to ourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, teaching and admonishing, hearing the Word of God as you peer in the Word of God and read it yourself and feed yourself the Word of God. He brings to mind areas, bitterness, unforgiveness, all these things that is no less important, far, far more important than a stack of stuff in the temple in Hezekiah's day. It defies our imagination how that could happen. If you came in today, we had hail, a bay, bales of hay packed up in here or or boxes packed up in here and, you know, clothes stacked up on the Lord's Supper table and just all kinds of stuff. And you'd say, what in the world is going on? Well, we just, we just needed some place to put some stuff. And, and it would be reprehensible, wouldn't it? But what about in our temple, in our hearts and lives? What are things that need to be cleared out and it's in the wrong place and gotten out of the way and, and, and dealt with? Some things just need to be thrown away, don't they? Uh, some things need to be put in their proper place. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. There's a prioritizing. Some of, some of God's people don't have priorities. They, they barely get to the house of God. They neglect the place of prayer, the public meetings. The, the priorities are all out of, out of joint, out of whack. Hezekiah uh, could have used the words of Solomon. John Phillips writes that God should have sat there on the mercy seat through those dark apostasy-ridden days and years and not have destroyed the temple, Jerusalem, and the nation in one fiery holocaust is a tribute to his patience and grace. How could he endure it? How could he endure our stubbornness and our stiff-neckedness and our waywardness and our taking lightly the things? Do you know what a privilege it is to be under the word of God and the preaching of the gospel and meeting with God's people 
We'll be observing his table in the Lord's Day evening. What a privilege these means of grace. And some people look at them as a light thing. Well, whatever. I've got busy. I'm busy. I've got other things to do. Hezekiah, when he clean, after he cleansed the temple and restored the true and prescribed worship, word-based worship, to, to assure the Lord that now he could rest. Things were put into place. And the Lord could work. The temple had been cleansed. The work of purifying and rededicating the temple was finished. We see there in verse 9, Let thy priest be clothed with righteousness. Now, you know the priest had a certain garb they had to wear. All of it was symbolic of the work of Christ at Calvary. Let thy saints shout for joy. Hezekiah had done everything he could to reinitiate the priesthood, the Levites, the choirs, clean out everything, put everything back exactly according to the pattern of the Lord. But one thing he could not do, he could not clothe them in righteousness. And as your pastor and as your Bible teacher, I can study, I can pray, I can present to you and show you the things of Christ, but I cannot give you righteousness. We cannot give someone else righteousness or salvation. Only the Lord can do that. How dependent are we on him? Only the Lord can do that. And he prays, oh, Lord, let thy priest be clothed in righteousness. He had pled with them to be made right with the Lord, but that's all he could do. He could only plead. He prayed that the Lord would make the saints shout for joy. Every pastor longs to see God's people worship the Lord in spirit and in truth and be jubilant in their praise. But I can't give you joy in worship. They had gone through much fear and war and deprivation. And now it was time for, for joy to fill the hearts of God's people. In David's day, when he looked forward to building the house for the Lord, he brought up the Ark of the Covenant from the wilderness to Jerusalem. And that was a fitting thing to do. And First Chronicles 15, verse 28 says, Thus all of Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting and with sound of cornet and with trumpets and with cymbals, making a noise with psalteries and harps. In verse 10 we see, for thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. Now, years later, King Hezekiah, the human author, we think here, is childless. And he realizes that if he doesn't have a child, his dynasty will not continue. His, his, the, the line of David will not continue. And he needed a son to carry out God's promise to David. Hezekiah had been sick unto death. You remember the story where the, he, he got the message and the prophet Isaiah uh, told him to get ready to die, which is something all of us should be ready to do. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to meet the Lord? What if you were to be called home today? And the message came to Hezekiah. Most of the time we don't get a message. We have no indication. Some may. The doctors may give a pronouncement that, you know, there's no hope. But rarely do we have that opportunity. And, so I, and then the preacher came by and said, yes, you need to get ready to die. He turned his face to the wall, the scripture tells us. Not just because he was sad that he was leaving, but there was an unfinished business. He had no heir. And if he died, what about God's promises to David? There was much more at stake than Hezekiah being healed, or even showing God showing his power that he could heal someone. We usually think of that, that story 
as a miracle, and it is, and healing, and that you can be healed, and, and people, I've heard everything in the world used to, about Hezekiah's healing, and it is a wonderful thing, and we do know that God can heal, can he? But the thing that's at stake here is the promise that God made to David, that, that his lineage would be forever. And so Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and said, this can't be true. I can't be dying. There's unfinished business. God's word is at stake. Lord, your testimony is at stake. What will happen? Hezekiah didn't plead his own name or all that he had done to revive and renew the temple. He could have said, is that what I get after all this revival and and resurgence of true religion and putting Jehovah back in his proper place and cleaning out the temple that I'm going to die? You see, why is it that we quickly think of God as being mean or not fair? That's our human nature, isn't it? Hezekiah didn't think that way. He pleaded David's name, the man after God's own heart. He, in verse 10, For thy servant David's sake turn not away the face of thine anointed. He pled the name of David. Why did he plead David's name? It was the greatest name he knew. And when you and I go before the Lord to plead our cause as we should constantly, whose name do we plead? When we cast down our circumstances, our impossible situations, the things, mountains that we cannot move, hearts that we cannot change, doctors' uh, analysis that we can't have anything to do with, what do we do? We cast it down before the Lord. And because when we have our circumstances, our lack of fruit, our obvious failures, we plead a name that is greater than any other name we know, don't we? Dear Heavenly Father, what do we say? We come to you in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? He has made it possible for us to come. And we ask for these things in his name and for his sake. The greatest name known to man. No other name given among men whereby we must be saved. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, Jehovah saves. Emmanuel, God is with us. We come in that name. That's how we make our petitions. Lord, we ask you because God the Father, who can do all things, does all things through his Son. And because of the work of his Son and in the energy of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the first half of the psalm. And it deals with David's desire to build a temple. It's a noble desire, isn't it? And David's not just going to have a desire. He's not going to just say, well, somebody needs to do something. He sets feet to his prayers and his desires. And I think that's a pattern for us. We should do all that we can do, all that we know to do, to help to bring things to pass. And then the rest we leave to the Lord in prayerful expectation. Now, you know as well as I do that at some point Jehovah is going to tell David, no, you're not going to build the temple. But... God honors David and his desire and calls him what he, he doesn't call anyone else in the scripture, a man after God's own heart. He desired for the God to be glorified. And I want to encourage us today, do we desire that more than anything? We see another one with that same desire, our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that my father be glorified. And then Paul, this one thing I do. And so we should be that way as well. Lord, that you be glorified first and foremost and above all things. In verses 11 through 18, we see that the Lord himself is the speaker. 
And, and he guarantees several things to David and David's descendants. I love the guarantees of the Lord in the Scripture. Oh, how this builds our faith. Whatever God has said he's going to do, you can just bank on it. You mark it down, God will bring it to pass. First, we see in verse 11, the first part, the Lord's integrity. Now, David has sworn to the Lord, but in verse 11, the Lord has sworn in truth unto David. Think about it. The Lord making a vow to us. The Lord has sworn in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. Well, we could just pause right there. That's enough for us to to think about and meditate on. When God has promised something to us, he won't turn from it. Think about promises that God has made to us. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Think about that. He will. Because I live, you shall live also. I am the resurrection and the life. These are promises no one can take away from us. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. My God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And so think of the Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. Whatever God has said in his word, he will not turn from it. No matter what the circumstances on life look like or feel like. Hezekiah had honored the Lord's house, hadn't he? You remember Hezekiah had this absolute cleansing of the temple, taking everything out that shouldn't be there, putting everything in its proper place. Now God takes care of the house, the dynasty. Remember, we refer to that word as a lineage, a dynasty, the house of Hezekiah that he had promised to David. Now God had made this promise to David 300 years before, and now it comes down to Hezekiah. He's sick. The preachers come and said, Hezekiah, get ready to die. You're going to die. And Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and cries out to the Lord that God would make good his promise and it could not be questioned. Do you see that most often when the Lord performs a miracle in the Bible, it is because and in answer to something he's already promised that he would do. Now, we could spend a great deal of time focusing on the healing of Hezekiah and we shouldn't make light of that. He was healed and life extended. But the reason, the background, the foundation of all that was this promise that God had made to David. And it came down to Hezekiah. If he dies and doesn't have a son, then what, what about the vow that God had made? What about the promise to David? God's word guaranteed that. When you pray, do you know what prayer is? It's taking God's word and telling him what he said. That's not being impudent. He tells us to do that. We bring before him these promises that he has made to us and in his word, and we claim them and rehearse them. When, I, when uh, Elijah saw the great paganism and idolatry in his land, he was so disturbed. Remember, he prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain for a period of time. That wasn't just something Elijah came up with. God had promised when my people go into idolatry, I will withhold rain in judgment and famine will come. And Elijah said, but you haven't done that. This one of the most amazing verses in the Bible is where the Bible says, God says, I have yet to be inquired of this by the house of Israel. And I ask you, I ask me, what promises have we yet to claim here at Glen Iris in this work here in your life, in my life? Don't we want to see Jesus greatly praised and his gospel to go forth in power and authority in revival and conversions and people following the Lord in baptism? All these things. He said, I will build my church. Lord, did you not say that? 
Lord, glorify yourself in the conversion of sinners. We plead to him his promises. And so God had sworn to David, it was not possible that God's integrity could fail. Isn't that something? Do you realize that God God is true if every man on earth is a liar, which we all are? God is true. Nothing he says is but absolute truth. Not one jot or tittle of his word will fail till all is fulfilled. And we can come boldly before the throne of grace and plead these promises to him. How bold of Hezekiah to write anew into his psalm the solemn pledge and promise of God. Hezekiah is taking the promise of God and reminding it of him. We can do the same. That's what prayer is. Prayer is not our twisting God's arm to do what we want him to do. It's God, have you not said and we in, in answer to the situation of the circumstance at hand. Look in there in verses, the latter part of verse 11 and 12. The Lord's intention of the fruit of thy body, this is David's, will I set upon thy throne, if thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them. Their children shall also sit upon thy throne forevermore. The promise made to David concerning the establishment of a Davidic dynasty or the line of David on the throne of Israel was unconditional. It was made to David back in Second Samuel chapter 7. But that promise was renewed to Solomon. When it was renewed to Solomon, it had been given a condition and an appendix, if you will, there to the obedience of God. We read in First Kings chapter 3, verse 14. This unconditional promise to David was made conditional to Solomon on obedience. And it must have haunted Hezekiah because we see it in, in here in Psalm 132, verse 12. If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon thy throne forever. He did not know what kind of son he was going to have, but he knew what kind of father he, he had, a weak and wicked man. One of Hezekiah's descendants was a man named Jehoiachin, also called Jeconiah, and sometimes merely Kaniah. Same man, Jehoiachin and Jeconiah and Kaniah. In 2 Kings 24, verse 6, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 9, and 1 Chronicles 13, verse 16. This man pulled down God's curse on the line of Solomon. He was a youth of 18 when he came to the throne and he ran, reigned just three months, long enough for the world to see what kind of king he would be. He carried off to Babylon. He, was, he himself was carried off to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And he was so thoroughly bad that Jeremiah contemptuously cut down his name from Jeconiah to Keniah because the name Jeconiah meant let Jehovah establish and Jeremiah lopped off the divine pre- prefix to it, Jehovah, and it just simply cut it off to, because he had cut himself off from Jeconiah. Jeremiah called this man Keniah, a despised, broken idol. Then he, uh, he said this, O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 28. In fact, Keniah was not childless. 
He had 11 sons, according to 1 Chronicles chapter 3, but he was childless as to the throne, since none of his sons sat on the throne of David. And in him the royal line to Christ through Solomon had come to an end. And so the threat... The inherent, in, in this conditional clause that when, when the Davidic line was renewed with Solomon came into effect. The Lord Jesus by birth was not a son of David through Solomon. He was not born of that branch of the Davidic family. Joseph was, but Joseph was not the father of Christ, was he? Jesus claimed the throne through a collateral line. David had two surviving sons through Bathsheba. Solomon, through whom the regal line is traced, to Joseph in Matthew, and then Nathan, to whom the the legal line is traced, to Mary in Luke. Jesus, the Bible tells us, was to be the seed of the woman. It was through Mary that he inherits, and that's why you have the two lineages given in Matthew and in Luke. He was was through Mary that he inherited the right to be Israel's legal king, although when Mary... Uh, Mary, Joseph, the two lines, the regal line and the legal line were joined as well. You see how miraculous the Lord does these things? So God kept his word to David, and he remained true to his warning to Solomon. Only God can do that. Hezekiah didn't know all this, though. Even though he's used by the Holy Spirit to pin these words, all he can see is where he is and what's going on in his life right now. And so do you see that's the same? We have very limited knowledge, don't we? All we know is where we are, what's going on now. But we have God's revelation in the Bible. We have the beginning to the end, don't we? In a sense, we do know more than that. We do know the end of all things, what God will do, that Jesus Christ will come back and rule and reign. And so we can, that's why we can confidently do our part because we've been called to the kingdom for such a time as this. Uh, Hezekiah didn't know how God was going to work all this out. And God may not tell us all the details, but we can pray his promises, can't we? We can do our part. We can preach the gospel. We can occupy till he comes. He did not know, Hezekiah did not know, that the, the Davidic line through Solomon had already been so badly tarnished. And he did not, but he did not live to see how dreadfully it would be tarnished by his own son, Manasseh. And then we see the promise concerning the sanctuary. Look there in verse 13. For the Lord hath chosen Zion. Think about it. David was seeking for a place, but God had already chosen the place. Isn't it wonderful when we seek for what God already has chosen for us? How can we do that? The only way that we can do that is to be aligned in his word. Lord, I want what you want. The Bible says the Lord chose the place. And David, he allows David to to find it, and he had desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever, and and here will I dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. What a wonderful thing the Lord ratified to David. Three things about the temple in this site, and we'll continue in our study here next Lord's Day. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for what you've taught us in your word today. Let God be true and every man a liar. Oh, Lord, may we take these promises to heart for our time and our place and our lives today. Bless us, we beg. In Jesus' name, amen.